it's a very collegial group. We have almost 60 organizations as members, 24 board members. We have big banks, small banks, core processors, small fintechs, even some academics. What's neat about it is when we talk about how do we do this, it's how do we do this? How do we serve our joint customers? It's actually people trying to solve problems. So that's useful. Then it's just a matter of prioritization. Um, and like any firm, if you're a tax prep firm, you want the tax fields next in line to be defined. If you're a budgeting firm, you want the budgeting firm. And that's okay. That's part of it. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. Behind the scenes and underpinning modern financial technology is data. Consumers want to access their financial data in the apps they prefer. And fintech and incumbent financial institutions are opening up to sharing this info. There's a move to standardize the data format and how it's accessed. Don Cardinal is the managing director of FDX, a nonprofit financial industry organization that promotes a common interoperable standard for securely sharing consumer financial data. He joins us on the podcast to discuss the FDX and what the implications of the FDX standards mean for the fintech industry, FIs, and consumers. Don Cardinal is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Good morning. I'm Don Cardinal. I'm the Managing Director of the Financial Data Exchange. We are a technical standards body, a not-for-profit that's developing a royalty-free, interoperable standard for secure permission data sharing between parties. So, Don, I'm not an engineer. You're going to have to explain that, unpack that for me. Thanks. No worries. Let's say you're using a tool like Mint.com to look at your 401ks from two or three jobs ago. Um, right now, for Mint to be able to go and log in and pull that data across, it needs your ID and password for all those custodians. The idea of sharing IDs and passwords in today's cyber world is probably not the best practice. So we've developed a mechanism or working with a new mechanism where Mint never has to hold that ID or password that they pass the session over to the financial institution. It authenticates you under the same rails it does today. So if you'd like to touch your, your phone or look at your eye, have it recognize your face, it'll do the same thing. It hands you back a series of tokens that allow access, then Mint can go forth and pull that data down and never see or touch your credentials. If they don't hold it, they can't lose it. Interesting, and, and were there interoperable standards before FTX came along? Sort of. Um, OFX is kind of a predecessor uh, uh, standard, and it, it existed for quite a number of years, I think back into the 90s. Uh, we've made some improvements, I think, up, upon it, and we've added some additional data elements. And I think we have more structure around it, so it's a more formal organization. And we've just had OFX join up under um, FDX as a working group, so we're going to harmonize those standards. So the idea of sharing data between financial institutions has been around for a while. Um, this is just trying to say, okay, if we had to do this today using best-in-class tools from around the planet, how would you do it? And, and this indeed is how we do it. Interesting. I guess, so what are the implications beyond just uh, me not having, not having to store my, my password in, you know, with, with an online password manager? Um, what are the implications industry at the industry level um, if, if we're able to standardize all this data? Well, they're huge. Um, and I'll take it player by player through, through the ecosystem. If you're a fintech, uh, right now for you to grab data, you either go through an aggregator or you go directly to these financial institutions who are constantly changing their interfaces. And so the invariably you have interruptions in your data. This is the raw material for a fintech. So having an API to go to means you have an always available interface. So constant supply of raw materials. 
Two, instead of screen scraping, which effectively logs in and pretends to be a human, and then you have to guess what each of the data elements means, you actually know because the API spells them out, which means you can make reliable decisions about what each data element means. And I'll give you an example. You say, well, what's your balance in your credit card? Well, it could be your statement balance, your current balance, your promotional balance. And all of those are a different number, and they could have a very bad impact on a credit granting decision if they pick the wrong one with the API that's defined. Now, banks like it because screen scraping is very burdensome. It's very resource intensive. Having all this traffic off the front door and to an API is a full order of magnitude more efficient, which means they don't have to buy near as much hardware, which is saving them millions of dollars. In addition, when their customers' IDs and passwords aren't shared, it lowers their risk envelope. And finally, because the API data sets are well-defined, that, God forbid, in a worst possible case, any data at risk is clearly known and defined. So we have a known situation to work from. So it's really in everyone's best interest to do this. So given that it is in everyone's best interest, what are some of the hurdles of getting everybody onto sort of a standard? Well, again, we have thousands of FIs and fintechs in the U.S. And remember, for a standard to work, we all have to agree on field one is balance, field two is date, field three is. And, and so that can be a bit of a can challenge. Can everybody share their toys? They actually can. Um, it's a very collegial group. We have almost 60 organizations as members, 24 board members. We have big banks, small banks, core processors, small fintechs, even some academics. What's neat about it is when we talk about how do we do this, it's how do we do this? How do we serve our joint customers? It's actually people trying to solve problems. So that's useful. Then it's just a matter of prioritization. Um, and like any firm, if you're a tax prep firm, you want the tax fields next in line to be defined. If you're a budgeting firm, you want the budgeting firm. And that's okay. That's part of it. I guess what's, so what's the process of, of, describing what you just did like what like how, how, how do you define what data to standardize first and, and who makes a decision you know which fields go where well our members make the decision I, i've had a lot of experience with not-for-profits over the years as, as a cpa you're, you're called to be the treasurer of pretty much any nonprofit or pta or church board you're ever that's around so, so yeah and that's okay uh and so our you're the numbers guy um i'm a numbers guy uh <laughs> luckily i've i've, I've I've been able to hand that to a very talented person. But again, these nonprofits succeed when their members succeed. So our working groups are staffed by members, chaired by members, run by members. They decide what the priority is, what we work on, and we move forward by consensus. It can be a little slow occasionally, but it's actually, um, it's actually relatively quick because we make the discussion, we weigh it out, say, okay, yes, no, all right, we make a decision and we move on. The board is really there for just general governance to give some structure to it, but we take our marching orders from our members. That's the only way a good not-for-profit can lead and survive. And what, what role uh, at the not-for-profit are the people participating in FDX? Are these people on the data side, people on the engineering side? Well, good question. We have quite a few efforts uh, because it's, it's not just a data spec. We have a whole template or whole framework to work off of. So we have user experience guidelines, for example, that we're drafting. So the UX team, the people who design and decide how to present data on a screen and, and different size screens, for example, each financial institution, typically your digital bankers and their, their web designers are, are folks who attend. Um, 
and they also help run the focus groups. We used to test this stuff in front of real people. Our security and architecture group actually has typically has secure security architects from member firms there to walk through our white paper and make sure we're representing best in class, things like FIDO and NIST and, and other things. Then we have our data structures team that the API group um, actually define, works on defining, okay, this is complies with RESTful standards. This is a JSON request. Field one should be this, field two should be that. And then of course we have uh, other groups for marketing to tell the world we exist. So different groups within an organization will go to different items. It's kind of like a buffet. You find your favorites and you kind of hover around that one section of the buffet. Interesting. And, and I, I guess I don't understand the ecosystem well enough, but um, do you feel, is there some tension with the data aggregators that you're both cooperative and maybe competitive against them? Do I understand that correctly? Um, I mean, let's go ahead and define, typically the use case is you have a FinTech app that uh, uses or has as an agent a data aggregator who then makes calls against a financial institution or some other data source mm -hmm. to pull back data or multiple sources. Um, so the extent that we're trying to solve the problem of held away credentials, trying to end screen scraping, trying to come up with a durable standard that we only have to build one time so we don't have to build multiple versions of it, I think we're all aligned around that common purpose. Um, we all want to be secure. Um, and there's actually a series of principles in there, and we'll get into in a minute. But uh, again, I have 11 banks on my board. They're all competing with each other. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, two-thirds of our members are non-FIs, and they're competing with each other. So there's a natural competition, but it's really around who's going to build a better mousetrap and who's going to solve which particular niche problem. So it's highly collegial. It really is. I wish you could come to see a board meeting. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall there. Um, you, you mentioned there were some principles embedded in it. What are some of those principles you were referring to? Sure. Um, having worked in the space and, and trying to move this thing forward, we realized that there's some common concepts that have raised their head. And the first one is control. Consumers need to be in control of their data. Decide which financial data they're going to share it with, with whom, for what purpose, for how long. Of course, that access is the second principle. Access needs to be... Uh, as frictionless as possible, needs to be as reliable as possible, and it needs to be done without a whole bunch of hoops to jump through. Of course, this all has to be done with transparency. I think that's the new watchword. Transparency has to do with having visibility in, oh yeah, that's right, I am sharing data with this tax prep software, or I am sharing data with um, a budgeting software. So you're, it's visible to you, you remember what you're doing and why you're doing it, so you never lose sight of that. Another one is traceability that the industry hasn't really talked a lot about. The idea of you should know that that chain I described from app to aggregator to FI and back again, that chain should be visible to the players so that if there's ever an issue, we can troubleshoot it, triage it, and work it as quick as possible. And of course, underlying the whole thing is security. Security is one of our main working groups. I think our white paper is probably a must read for anyone sharing financial data but it, it underpins the trust this whole ecosystem has to have. So it's control, access, transparency, traceability, and security. You do those five things, you can make a sustainable tool. So we definitely can link to the, to the white paper in the show notes. Um, I, I'm curious just to go back to transparency, that principle. Is that referring, you described it, transparency to the, to the industry, to the ecosystem. Is, are you also- and to the consumer. 
Okay, that was, that was my question. Yeah, I'm very proud. Um, several of our member firms have created dashboards uh, in their online banking suites so that a consumer who has tried out a budgeting app and maybe deleted it from the phone, forgot they had it, can still see, oh, I'm still sharing data with so-and-so. Um, so uh, Wells, City, Chase, USAA, and Bank of America uh, are the ones I know of right now that have them in production. I think there's some others in the way. Uh, in addition, you can stop access instantly. Uh, it's kind of a one-way, uh, the railroad uh, kill switch. And to, to, to everybody you're sharing with, means stop for everybody? Well, it means I can stop. So if I'm in Wells and I say stop, it oh, means no more Wells data goes out to XYZ provider. Understood. Uh, so, so F, you know, take this forward, you know, a couple of years. Um, wh what does financial services look like if, you know, F as FDX grows in its, in its membership and, and more and more people are using the APIs, like what does that, what does the, the fintech slash financial services industry look like in terms of like collaboration? Like, is it very different from what we've seen today? Well, every time you say, we talk about you know, looking at the future, basically we say it's more the same, but faster. Um, anything in life. Better mousetrap. Better mousetrap. But consider, uh, we, we talked about budgeting. We talked about tax prep with it, very common use cases. But I want to point out something new and innovative is Experian Boost. The idea of using alternative data to influence your score. Well, if you have reliable data from a variety of financial services firms, you can now offer add-on or services we hadn't even considered years ago. And by having reliable uh, API that anyone can build to, because it's already been defined and tested at scale, I mean, we've already got a couple million users on this thing. Um, a small fintech, you know, Don and Zach's fintech in a garage, um, don't face the same barriers to entry. Or a smaller FI that is interested in getting involved in this space or partnering with somebody doesn't have to build a lot of things from scratch when resources are scarce. So I see it lowering the barriers to entry to innovation. I see good, stable, reliable data that's secure, uh, enabling a lot of net new things for everyone. Right. I guess that's what I was getting at, whether, whether this really is just expediting what exists today and just doing it better and cleaner, and more secure, or it actually creates things that we haven't yet seen. Um, and it sounds like if, if, if data and clean data becomes a utility, um, you're talking, you believe that there's, we're going to see t the new business formation of the type that we haven't seen yet. We will. I think, uh, it, again, it's not just the fintechs, as you think of non-FIs, but FIs themselves as fintechs. People forget the huge digital investment in innovation labs that you know, most FIs have got. They're fairly creative as well. The idea of mortgage processing being done in a day, underwriting being done in a day, because you can verify account ownership and account asset ownership. You could eventually you know, pull down uh, property tax records from your registrars in the different counties and do that in real time and have faith that the data is accurate. One of the neat things the API solves, when right now when you apply for a mortgage or the old way, right, you used to have to get your statements from whatever account lots you were of using. Paper. Yeah. Lots of paper. You would scan it, fax it, email it. And we saw in the mortgage crisis that some people tended to fudge those numbers. Mm -hmm. Or you also saw uh, issues with scan quality, OCR quality. Mm -hmm. Well, with API, there's no chain of custody issue. It's direct from the FI. Also, it's machine adjustable. There's no rekey errors or no uh, OCR scan errors, which means your data is of much higher quality. 
So if it's more trusted and of higher quality, my underwriting decision timeline can be shrunk dramatically. Think about it. if you're an underwriter, instead of taking two weeks, which case your, your, your applicant could be applying other places, you can actually close that loan while they're in session. That's huge. That is huge. I'm also curious, like as we, we, we've talked a little bit on this podcast about sort of the data exhaust that, that people create in the wake of um, using, say, say, fintech apps, but it could definitely be financial services apps. We're talking about, you know, pulling data from the institutions. Is there also going to be a push over time, you know, from at the app level back to the institution? Like, is, are we going to see that sort of full cycle sharing of data? Well, I think potentially. Well, no, no, no. I, I think potentially because, you know, once you have a secure connection, once you've got vetted parties, you know, that uh, they, they both know each other and say, yes, you both have reasonable, reasonable data sharing protocols, et cetera, enough to share data. Um, I, I think you'll see FIs as net consumers of data as well, because data makes better, makes for better decisions. Better decisions means less risk. Uh, less risk is where everyone in financial services is headed. So in, earlier in the conversation, on you mentioned the OFX is, is joining FDX. Um, and so there's a consolidation of standards to, to, to more of a single, singular um, standard. But is, is that a challenge in the future just to make sure you stick with just like one layer of truth, I guess? Well, that's the neat thing about having a consortium while we're building that. Remember, we have fintechs, aggregators, financial institutions, and permission parties like a, a, a Freddie Mac or I'm sorry, Fannie Mae and um, uh, Credit Bureau. So the idea is, as long as we satisfy their needs, as long as we listen to them and help them with their business processes, then we'll have no need for net new standards. Net new standards come up because there's an unmet need in the marketplace. As long as we're meeting their needs and continue to meet net new needs, we'll continue to be that, that's, that central nexus. So, so in, in other words, as new data, um, I guess, new demands for different types of data per se, like arise, if, if the FDX is responsive to those needs, you'll just incorporate those within the FDX. You're, you're not concerned about a, a competitive standard per se. No. Uh, if you build a very good mousetrap in technology in today's world, people will come. Interesting. And we have time for one last question, Don. Like, what, what are your biggest... Um, Biggest priorities, you know, what are you focused on for, for the second half of this year going in, you know, the back nine? Truly, it's adoption and ubiquity. Uh, every standard has to reach a critical mass. And we've already got, you know, north of 2 million users on it. I expect it to go to 6 million by year end. But there's still a lot of folks who aren't sure what we are, what we do. And uh, that's the big thing. Is, you know, I always tell everyone, tell 10 friends. Hmm. Because as more people see this and learn about it and pilot it, I think, and see the results for themselves, you get that sort of ubiquity where there is a common standard and critical mass is very important for standards. And can you lean on the FIs, uh, some of the larger organizations in, in the consortium to help get the word out? Absolutely. Uh, in addition, we have trade associations as members. We have FSISAC, uh, American Bankers Association just joined, mm -hmm. uh, SIFMA, the uh, Clearinghouse. Certainly, uh, we, will ask, we are asking our other members to tell 10 friends themselves and share the benefits. Don, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.